Good morning. Am I on? All right. I'm not good with these headpieces. They took mine away at Madeira and made me use this mic because I play with it. So we'll see how I do this morning. Uh, if I see you straining, I'll try to uh, speak up or fix this. Um, well, it's a privilege to be here. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, growing up at College Hill, uh, I've always wanted to preach here. Um, it's exciting knowing all the preachers that have been here. And I'm sure you'll be happy to know that one of the ones who influenced me most is Bill Enns, who believes in the 15-minute sermon. So I'm not as good as Bill, but I will make uh, a, a real effort here. Well, um, I know that you guys are between sermon series right now, uh, and Drew has given me a lot of freedom, maybe too much, this morning. Um, we'll find out by the end, and I'm sure I'll hear about it in the uh, atrium. Um, so it could be a recipe for disaster, but he encouraged me to select one of my favorite texts. And so what I went with was Luke chapter 18. And that may seem like an odd selection for a favorite text. Um, but growing up here at CHBC, uh, very active in the children's youth uh, ministry, uh, even some collegiate ministry, serving as an intern, uh, worship leading, working with the youth, uh, everything I've done here, uh, I'm very steeped in church culture. And four and a half years now at Madeira Silverwood Presbyterian, uh, I've been surrounded by Christianity my whole life. And I find that as a Christian, it's very easy to fall out of touch with the importance and the centrality of the gospel. So um, hopefully the worship leaders aren't uh, upset with me because my sermon title is simply, What is the Gospel? I didn't give them a lot to work with here. Uh, I'm intentionally ambiguous, hopefully to pique your curiosity. Um, one of the guys that I like to read, who actually was a pastor here once upon a time, was R.C. Sproul. And he said it was a few years ago, uh, and the book was a few years ago, so maybe it was 10 years ago. He was at a Christian conference, and they had set up a booth asking Christians one question, which was, what is the gospel? And he said they only had five people respond with what they considered to be an adequate response. Um, now, they may have been getting into semantic issues and other things like that. But when I hear things like that, along with what I've experienced, uh, it leads me to be very intentional and articulate with the way uh, I present the gospel and, and the text. So if you pray with me, uh, we'll jump right into the text after this. Father God, just thank you for uh, this church and, this, and the great upbringing that I've had here. Um, I just pray that your word would be opened and illuminated and we would have uh, ears to hear this morning and that our hearts would receive uh, the message you have for us. Uh, so be with me as I preach, and just uh, let your Holy Spirit fill this place. In your name we pray, amen. Now, uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles with me. I know that they're up on the screen, but I'm not a real preacher, so I want you to check what I'm doing here. This is page 853. This is chapter 18 of Luke. And uh, this should be a familiar one, not as familiar as the second text I'm going to use. Um, but we'll see what it says here. And he says... And this is Jesus. Uh, he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, the reason I picked this passage, um, a lot of times when I, uh, when I preach, I evangelize, I share, uh, whether it's with students or churches, uh, and you want to talk about justification, that's being made right before God, you know, how a sinful person can be in good standing, be righteous before God. Usually we turn to Paul, because Paul uses that word a lot, but here, Jesus uses the word just. Um, he talks around the theme a lot, but the word, for whatever reason, is not used frequently in the Gospels. Now, Luke is a very clever writer, and what he does is he tells us about the contents of Jesus' message uh, when he introduces Jesus' audience. So when we look at who Jesus is speaking to, he says that the parable was told to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there's three things that you're going to learn about Jesus' audience before you even hear Jesus teach. One is that they trust in themselves. That's important. Two, that they believe that they are inherently righteous. That's where their trust is. Their trust is in their own righteousness. And three, that they treat others with contempt, which, by the way, is not the fruit of righteousness. That's not what righteous people do. Uh, So we see an inherent contradiction there. Now, in the parable, Jesus describes two men who go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed to God as if he were righteous, But the tax collector would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, Jesus said that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. So the question we have to ask, the question the original audience asked, the question that we are burdened with is why? Why would the tax collector deemed righteous or justified before God and the religious leader not? Uh, Now the answer is in Luke's introduction. It's a matter of where our trust is placed. Uh, now let's, we're going to look at where the Pharisee's trust was placed. So this is his case for why he's righteous. He's speaking to God as if he is a righteous person. And he goes before God, he prays, and I'm going to look at them in reverse order because it's easier to explain them that way. The first thing he says is, I give tithes of all I get. Right? This is where he's building his case for righteousness. He makes his case that he's a good steward of his money. Right? That's a good thing. Uh, when I'm not going to blast that even though I can because Drew's out of town. I can say whatever I want. (laughs) Second, okay, I just want to make sure you're listening. Uh, I work with middle schoolers. I never know if they listen. Um, I have to throw things like that out there. The second, he said, is I fast twice a week. How many of us fast twice a week, once a week, once a year? Um, Point made. The Pharisee puts his trust in his spiritual or religious disciplines. He believes that he is righteous because of the practices and devotion that he upholds. And the third thing he says, so he's, he gives tithes of all he gets, he fasts twice a week, but three, I am not like other men. What does he mean by that? This is the trickiest one because he is thanking God that he's not like other men. So where is he placing his trust? The answer is that he believes he is morally righteous. He believes that God made him that way and he is thankful for it, but his trust is still in himself in his own righteousness, his own ability, his own moral law-keeping and upholding the law. And his confidence is that he is not like extortioners, which means, so this is what he's saying. I'm not like the extortioners. I don't cheat at work. 
I'm not unjust. I keep the law in my life. I keep those Ten Commandments. I'm not an adulterer. I'm faithful to my wife. I don't cheat on my wife. And I'm not like that tax collector, by the way, who's standing next to him. I'm not like the tax collector who's infamous for cheating others. So his trust is placed in himself and his own natural inclination, his ability and works towards, for, and of righteousness. So he believed in his own moral and religious achievements. And this is how he approaches God. Now, uh, the interesting thing to me is when you see, you see Jesus telling this parable, this man records his great record and says all these great things he's done. Jesus doesn't even call it into question. Everything this man's saying could be true, and for the sake of justification, it does not matter. Jesus leaves it totally unaddressed. So he doesn't seem to care one way or the other. Um, and so essentially, and this is fast-forwarding, and then I'll jump back to the tax collector, but essentially what the Pharisee is doing is confusing the root of salvation with the fruit of salvation. The root of salvation is placing your faith and trusting in God for your righteousness. The fruit is living in accordance with God's law, conforming to the image of Christ, doing these great things. Uh, and so before I move on, though, I'd just like to point out to the, about the Pharisees. I think a lot of times uh, we have a skewed perspective on the Pharisees, um, we, or at least I, get really excited when Jesus starts to rip into the Pharisees. I'm like, yeah, go get him, Jesus. What we fail to realize is that he's talking to us. It, the Pharisee was your seminarian, your pastor, uh, your Christian bookstore kind of guy. He was a man faithfully devoted to his religion, uh, his religious practices. He had good portions of the Bible memorized. Uh, and so it's, it's not surprising to us when Jesus says the Pharisees uh, aren't justified because we read the Bible all the time. We know the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys in the Bible. But it would have been very surprising, maybe shocking, offensive, or even flippant to the original audience since Pharisees were the icon of religious practice. Now, let's look at the tax collector. Let's uh, scoot down a little bit. I don't have the verses memorized. I think we're in verse uh, 13 now. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so let's see where the, the tax collector placed his trust. Because remember, that's the operative word here is trust. That's in Luke's introduction. The Pharisee's trust is placed in himself and his own ability, his own righteousness, his own morality. Then we move to the sinner, or the tax collector. Uh, he is a sinner, but he's a tax collector. Uh, who prayed a simple prayer. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And although this was a simple prayer, it was profound because he realizes two important things here. One, he realizes that he is fallen and sinful in his condition. He realized that he is incapable of righteousness on his own, and that if he had any hope for righteousness, it had to come from God. He didn't consider himself worthy to be in an audience with God. Instead, he beat his chest and would not look up to heaven. Let's contrast with the Pharisee's posture. The Pharisee has no problem looking to heaven because he believes he's a righteous man. He's, you know, God's here, I'm here. The tax collectors, God's here, I'm here, and he gets it. So that's the first thing he realized. And the second is he realized um, that the, the complete holiness of God, the perfection that is required of God, and the presumable anger of God towards a lowly sinner, uh, which would only be fair. Uh, see, a lot of times we work as if God is on a sliding scale of morality. Like we, you know, when we check ourselves for sin, we give ourselves a couple mulligans like we do on the golf course, uh, you know. Like, well, you know, I did pretty well, but uh, I messed up here, here, and here. But, you know, that's no big deal. You know, God's not perfectly holy or anything. 
but he is. And the tax collector realizes that. So the tax collector understood his condition as not being inherently morally, religiously righteous like the Pharisee. He also understands God's holiness. So where did he place his trust for justification? The answer is in God. He knew that he could not make himself righteous, and if he had any shot at righteousness, then it has to be by the mercy of God, which is what he appeals to and places his trust in. So the tax collector places his trust in the character of God, the person of God, and, his, and relies on God's mercy and grace. And it is for that reason that Jesus calls him just. Um, now Martin Luther uses the term alien righteousness for this, uh, which I, I think is a helpful term, because it, it's righteousness that is not from himself but from God. Uh, so Jesus said that this man went home justified rather than the other one who trusted in his own ability. So, you know, boil that down, alien righteousness, meaning when I go to stand before God, I need Jesus' righteousness, not my own. Now, I don't need, you know, all the uh, filthy rags as scripture. Our, all our good works are filthy rags before God. That's what you show to God. That's not what we need. What we need is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to uh, scroll down the page here a little bit. I think it's on the same page. Yeah. Uh, verse 18. We're going to go 18 through 26. Now, this is, um, this is a story that Rich Young Ruler, it's a popular story, one that's not necessarily used for justification, but I think it confirms the teachings up above. Uh, so we'll read here real quick. Um, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not uh, commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not, shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these things since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is one thing still lacking. Sell all that you have and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think we've probably heard this one taught uh, a few different times, maybe even a few different ways. And uh, I will suggest to you uh, uh, the way that this is worded here. So the rich young man comes... Uh, to ask how to inherit eternal life. So what is he seeking? Just like the two in the story above, he's seeking justification or righteousness. But I would point out that I think what this guy's looking for, he's looking for confirmation that he's already righteous because he already thinks pretty highly of himself because he comes to Jesus and he says this, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus tells the man what he wants to hear at first. He says, obey the law. Uh, the man said, well, I've kept that uh, from my youth. Now, it's interesting. What law does Jesus tell him to keep? He, um, he points out the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't use all of them. Uh, I think one of the last series before I was here was the Ten Commandments, and, and we had talked about the difference between um, the horizontal laws and the vertical laws, I think is what we called them here. Horizontal being uh, the laws between man and man, vertical being the laws between God and man, and the Ten Commandments are split in half in that way. So there's half that are horizontal, half that are vertical. Jesus lists the horizontal ones. Take care of your neighbor. 
do these things, don't do these things. Um, and, and so, but well, let's stop for a second. So the man, Jesus tells him, obey the law. The man says, I have obeyed the law. So where is this man placing his trust? In his law keeping. So um, he's placing it in his own ability and his past record of the law. And once again, I'll point out to you, Jesus doesn't call that into question. Now, if someone came to me claiming that they had kept half of the Ten Commandments perfectly, my first response would be to get defensive and, and call them out and say, no, that's, there's no way that you've done that. You've, you know, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've thought about things you shouldn't think about, you've done things you shouldn't do. But Jesus doesn't call that into question. He brushes it off, as he did with the Pharisees' claims about morality uh, in the passage before. Uh, and so it's interesting. He does not ask him about one of the vertical commandments between man and God. And so... Here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, come and follow me. Now Jesus says there's one thing you lack, but he lists three things. So what are we supposed to do with that? Which one of those three is the thing that the man lacks? Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, come and follow me. That's weird. Um, if you've ever had a micromanaging boss, I'm sure that's what one commandment sounds like uh, a lot of times. So you get one and you end up getting a list of three things. Although the answer here is that none of them, none of them are the thing the man's actually like. And what the man lacks is Jesus. He is not in relationship with God. He has upheld the man-to-man commandments, but he has not had the relationship with, between God and man and between Jesus uh, and man. So his trust needs to be in Jesus rather than than his own ability to perform the works that are required of him. The man essentially is looking for a checklist, more things that he could do so that he could be confident in his own righteousness. But Jesus makes it clear that this man cannot be the source of his own righteousness. Uh, and so I think that's, it becomes clear when you read the rest of the Bible and New Testament. You know, Paul, he really hits those things home. But here we see Jesus talking about it in a very plain way. And so there's, there's really... Uh, there's two types of people we're dealing with here. Uh, and Jesus, in the first parable, calls them both to repentance. We have the irreligious person, right? The sinner, the tax collector, the extortioner, the adulterer, all those groups. That's the irreligious. And we have the religious here, which they place all their trust in their own ability, their own law-keeping. They have this checklist of everything that they've done right, things that they do well. And Jesus calls them both to repentance, you repent of your irreligion, your sinning, your this, that, and the other thing. You repent of your religious checklisting. And only one of them repents, and it's this one, because I think the repentance sometimes is harder to hear in this camp. So what are we supposed to do with all this? And the point that I'm driving at here is how a person can be seen as justified or righteous before God. This passage, along with many, many others, make it clear that the people who trust in their own ability to keep the law or trust that they are moral or righteous are truly confused about the message of Jesus. This confused gospel shows a lack of understanding about the human condition, the holiness of God, and the source of righteousness. It's the difference between the root of justification and the fruit of salvation, as we talked about earlier. Now, the gospel, and a lot of people... Uh, now, I shared this message, like I said... Uh, he told me to pick a favorite passage. I picked this one because I share it all the time. If it's luckily no Madeira people are here because they've already heard the sermon, the middle schoolers have heard it at their lock-ins, the high schoolers have heard it at fall retreat, and probably a few other times. 
Now, the reason I use this passage, a lot of people, when they hear this, they get bummed out, right? This is good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news. Um, But they get confused because sometimes it's a new angle that they haven't really heard on things. Um, and And I have another bit of news for you. If God were only to look at perfect people and call them righteous, right? If the Pharisee were correct, if everything the Pharisee did was what made him righteous and he was perfectly righteous, and God looks at him and says, yes, you are righteous, you are justified, come on up to heaven. That's not good news. That's, that's just news. That's just God calling. That's what it is. He just calls it like he sees it. You know, Well, that person's righteous, and I'm going to call them righteous. Well, that's not good news. That's just news. The good news is when an unrighteous person can be called righteous. That's the good news. That's Jesus' message. That's the tax collector's situation, is that he's not a good person, but he's seen as a good person because of his trust and his faith in Jesus. Now, I'll end with uh, one of my favorite illustrations here. And I told you I'd be brief, and I think I've done pretty well. Um, This one comes in handy with youth ministry. And... uh, and most of you remember being students once upon a time, uh, or even if you're still a student, we're all students of something, I guess. Um, but here's, here's a distinction between what, what the religious Pharisee offers and what Christianity offers. Now, um, it's, it's about the difference between good advice and good news. Most religions offer good advice, which is if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then you'll be in good with God, or God, in some cases, will owe you something. God will be indebted to you because you've been so good. And that's not the teaching of Christianity. Those are all pieces of good advice. What Christians offer is good news, and here's the difference. Now, if you're a student, and the teacher says to you, now, study hard this week, take good notes, you have a test on Friday. That's good advice. I find no fault with that. Uh, If the day before the test, the teacher says, make sure you get plenty of rest, eat a good breakfast tomorrow, uh, you know, before the test, make sure you're ready. That's also good advice. Now, Friday comes around, and the teacher is walking around the aisles during the test, and she walks into a student who's struggling with a blank piece of paper, and she says, you know, just, just try to relax, breathe deeply, try to remember all that you've studied. That's also good advice. Now, if the teacher walks up to that student and says, slide over, I'll take the test for you. That's good news. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. Our good works have been done for us. Our standing with God is good because of our faith with Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father God, just thank you for your word this morning and uh, this time to open it and share. Just pray that uh, we would continue to carry the gospel with us Uh, Everywhere we go, uh, so often uh, I am guilty of of, uh, thinking too little or underestimating the gospel uh, and its power and its impact, Uh, and just pray that uh, we would constantly carry that with us wherever we go and that uh, the power of the gospel might transform our lives, the good news that you have brought to us through your son, Jesus Christ. ask all these things in your name. Amen.